Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, Daniel chapter 3 continued. Well, as we continue in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to conclude today that famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into that blazing hot furnace for the sake of their faith. And I think we're all going to feel the heat of that fire one way or another as we consider the implications that pertain to us individually and as a group of like-minded followers of Yeshua. So, open your Bibles. Let's reread uh, Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. We're going to just read up until verse 27. So 16 through 27, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1102. We're going to start at verse 16, go through 27. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. Your question doesn't require an answer from us, your majesty. If our God, whom we serve, is able to save us, he will save us from the blazing hot furnace and from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, we will neither serve your gods nor worship the gold statue which you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar became so utterly enraged that his face was distorted with anger against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace made seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing hot furnace. So these men were tied up in their cloaks and tunics and robes and other clothes and thrown into the blazing hot furnace. And the king's order was so urgent and the furnace so overheated that the men carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were burned to death by the flames. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the blazing hot furnace. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar sprang to his feet and alarmed. He asked his advisors, Didn't we throw three men bound into the flames? And they answered the king, Yes, of course, your majesty. But he claimed, Look, I see four men, not tied up, walking around there in the flames, unhurt. The fourth looks like one of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing hot furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you servants of El Elyon, come out, come out here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the flames. And the viceroys and prefects and governors and royal advisors who were there saw that the fire had no power on the bodies of these men. Not even their hair was singed. Their clothes looked the same. They didn't even smell of fire. Well, in our previous lesson, we discussed this broad impact that the defiant words of these three Jewish lads as they face down the king of the world ought to have on the life of every believer who hears them. But while we all probably intellectually and emotionally agree with the concept of faith unto death in our relationship with God, we each put self-imposed limits and boundaries as to just how far we're willing to take that. Under what circumstances we might exercise those limits. 
Now, and I illustrated by asking you to consider a laundry list of cases and varying situations where we might or we might not be willing to choose strict obedience to God's word over pragmatism. And I provided no solutions or answers because that wasn't the point. The point was to demonstrate that more often than not, at least in the Western world, the limits that we place on ourselves regarding carrying out a true and sincere biblical faith don't involve anything as serious as what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. Rather, our circumstances usually only amount to avoiding confrontations, wanting to please people, trying not to be the oddball in the midst of folks that we respect or whose relationships we value, choosing where we want to spend our time and money, or simply preferring to maintain a level of comfort or personal liberties that we've grown used to. See, we entered our last lesson with a famous quote in Luke 14 where Yeshua not only urges His disciples to faithfulness, full of actions, but He also makes it clear who can and cannot be His disciples. In other words, contrary to the way we might prefer it, or maybe the way we've even been taught it, it's not only our decision that we want to be His disciples, but that the Lord sets up conditions upon those who would think to undertake such a commitment. And Messiah says He will not allow the following people to be His disciples. In Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life besides it, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, Whoever whoever does not carry his own execution stake and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, So every one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I hope you hear that. I hope you hear that I, as your minister and teacher, I'm not the one setting the standard. I'm not defining the rules on who Yeshua will accept as His disciple and who He will not. But I do want you to hear that walking forward in an assembly and praying a sinner's prayer and then coming to a worship service every Saturday or Sunday are nowhere found as the beginning and end of our salvation experience as far as Yeshua's stated requirements go. Certainly, it's not a works righteousness salvation program that Jesus is describing. But it is definitely that our actions and our decisions are organically connected to our redemption. And that the level of commitment that Christ is seeking from each and every one who desires to be His disciples goes way beyond good intentions or intellectual agreement with biblical principles. Basically, the idea in verse 26 
is that you must value... We're talking about Luke 14, verse 26. Is that you must value Messiah above every living person on this planet, including your closest and most beloved blood relatives. Verse 27, Yeshua tells us, we must be willing to give up our physical, fleshly lives if the situation demands it. And finally, verse 33 says, Everything we consider as belonging to us, whether it's material possessions, personal liberties, personal finances, social status, and more, all this must be considered disposable in relation to our allegiance to Him. And I'll be the first one to admit, I don't measure up to that standard. I fail. I also suspect that in one area of your life or another, neither does anyone hearing this message stand up to every aspect of this. See, perfection in these areas is the goal, without doubt. But perfection is also a process. And only one human has ever achieved both. And it is the one who's speaking the words of Luke 14. If we compare what we read in the New Testament of the personal cost, the personal cost to be a disciple of Christ, and then we read in the history books of the many persecutions of Christians who made that commitment of a renunciation of all things worldly, I think we probably need to admit that the standard we've set for ourselves is pretty low. And we can do a lot better. And it seems to me that what we all ought to strive for as our goal is the faith unto death described by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego instead of the faith unto discomfort that's replaced it for the most part. We need to have a faith that is so humble, so full of love, so embedded in us that it will brook no compromise, it will accept no rule of man that clearly conflicts with what God has clearly laid out in His laws and commandments. In an era in the democratic West where most of our highest government leaders on the one hand will still maintain that they are believers but at the same time passionately advocate as the best choice for modern society a secular humanist government system that distances itself as far as possible from the God of the Bible Christians and Jews today face a stark point of decision. Shall we agree with our leaders that in the 21st century we must modify or even redefine the ancient biblical definitions of good and evil, of moral and immoral, and in some cases recast the very nature of of our lifestyle choices as a range of permissible preferences as opposed to how we formerly saw them as issues of obedience to the divine creator.
Or shall we spend our time, our effort, endlessly plowing the fertile fields of the Holy Scriptures? Learning God's ways. Living them out. And being content to bear the earthly consequences of a steadfast face that manifests itself in actions and deeds that won't always agree with our government's edicts or win the approval of our evolving societal norms. See, the bottom line is, how can we honestly say with sincerity that we are willing to die for our faith if we won't even face people who simply disagree with us? Or people who label us primitive and ignorant because of our beliefs? How can we call it taking up our cross if we find it too challenging to be merely laughed at? Excluded from a group of friends or acquaintances because they've chosen obedience to an ever-transforming social system over a biblically-based faith to the Lord. See, those three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't just suddenly make their choice as they stood in front of Nebuchadnezzar. They'd prepared for that day. Long before they were called to be questioned by the king, they had decided what mattered most to them. But now there was finally an opportunity to live it out. Thus verse 19 says that King Nebuchadnezzar followed through with his threat to burn anybody alive in his vast empire that refused to pay homage to the symbol of the Babylonian government, that enormous golden statue at Dura. And this verse speaks of this, his volcanic anger that was more the result of his pride being pricked. Because this kind of world government can't stand any opposition. Thus his command to make the furnace seven times hotter is an absurdity. What, are the three Jews going to burn up better in a furnace seven times hotter than normal? After all, this furnace was probably either a lime kiln or was meant to separate large quantities of copper from its ore in a smelting process. It wasn't designed to bake bread. So it was a furnace that normally operated between 900 and 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. Plenty enough to do the job without making it even hotter. And I'll be reminding you of this a couple of times. But let's remember that here in Daniel 3, we have a pagan king who is giving the orders. And he is operating through his pagan worldview. That even the scriptures were written in the Gentile language of the era, Aramaic. See, that helps this important point to come across. <clears throat> so whereas if we were reading Hebrew 
and we were dealing with an Israelite king, the number seven would have divine significance. But here, it's just a number to connect the king's almost comical wrath to his determination to make the execution as horrific as possible. The truth is that the ancients had no means to create a 7,000 degree heat. Something almost as hot as the surface of the sun. Then we hear that the king ordered some of his strongest men to bind up the three Jews and then to toss them into the fire. And that's a poor translation and it misses the point. The Aramaic word is gibar, and it is the same as the Hebrew word gibar, and it better translate as, translate as mighty men, not strongest men. See, mighty men is a title for the top warriors in the army, the best fighters, usually the most highly decorated of the soldiers. And it's almost always that they indicate that they were military leaders, and of course all that fits the context here. So these highly decorated soldiers, who were all symbolic, also symbolic of the most loyal, thus also nearest to the king, they were given the honor of executing these Jews who refused to bow down to the one world power of Babylon. And apparently they were taken, as is, to the furnace in their fancy court dress to be burned alive. But when these mighty men went to throw these three into the furnace, it had been heated to the point that their clothing combusted and they went up in flames. See, the way a furnace of this type worked is that it has an opening at the top where you put in the ore, and then an opening at the bottom where you put in the wood and other materials for the fire. So the idea is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in from the top. Well, the action now picks up as our heroes are indeed cast into the furnace, and even more, they were bound. So if for some unknown reason they weren't immediately charbroiled, they wouldn't be able to make a mad dash out of the hole in the bottom. So we have the three youth now in the belly of the furnace. The king and some of his highest government officials are watching at a safe distance, looking through a hole at the bottom of the furnace, and then something completely bizarre happens that astounds and perplexes Nebuchadnezzar. But, if one has a Bible based on the Greek Septuagint, and or what's called the Old Greek, the text of this story makes a sudden break. And a long prayer and then a song are inserted here. And the prayer is called the prayer of Azariah, or as he's now known by his new Babylonian name, Abednego. Then follows the song of the three youths, why these two works are inserted here in Greek Bible versions and not those based on the Hebrew texts just isn't certain. Rather, in some Protestant and in Catholic versions, the prayer and the song are part of the Apocrypha, 
a separate section of the Bible. But they are worth reading, if nothing else, for the sake of familiarity and and the form of their petition to God. So, we're going to read this right now. It's going to take a few minutes, but you need to hear this. You need to hear this, as it is in some Bibles. The first is called the Prayer of Azariah, and it goes like this. They walked around in the midst of the flame, singing hymns to God and blessing the Lord, and then Azariah Abednego stood still in the fire, and he prayed out loud. Blessed are you, O Lord, God of our ancestors, and so worthy of praise, and glorious is your name forever, for you are just in all you've done. All your works are true and your ways right, and all your judgments are true. You have executed true judgments in all you have brought upon us and upon Jerusalem, the holy city of our ancestors. By a true judgment you have brought all this upon us because of our sins. For we have sinned and broken your law in turning away from you. In all matters we have sinned grievously. We have not obeyed your commandments. We have not kept them or done what you have commanded for us for our own good. So all that you have brought upon us, all that you have done to us, you have done by a true judgment. You have handed us over to our enemies, lawless and hateful rebels, to an unjust king, the most wicked in the world. And now we cannot open our mouths. We, your servants, who worship you, have become a shame and a reproach. For your name's sake, don't give us up forever. Don't annul your covenant. Do not withdraw your mercy from us for the sake of Abraham, your beloved, and for the sake of your servant Isaac and Israel, your holy one, to whom you promised to multiply their descendants like the stars of heaven, like the sand on the shore of the sea. For we, O Lord have become fewer than any other nation and are brought low this day in all the world because of our sins. In our day we have no ruler, no prophet, no leader, no burnt offering or sacrifice or oblation or incense. We have no place to make an offering before you and to find mercy. Yet with a contrite heart and humble spirit may we be accepted as though it were with burnt offerings of rams and bulls, or with tens of thousands of fattened lambs. Such may our sacrifice be in your sight today, and may we unreservedly follow you, for no shame will come to those who trust in you. And now with all of our heart, we follow you. We fear you and we seek your presence. Do not put us to shame. Deal with us in your patience and in your abundant mercy. Deliver us in accordance with your marvelous works and bring glory to your name, O Lord. Let all who do harm to your servants be put to shame. Let them be disgraced and deprived of all power. Let their strength be broken. Let them know that you alone are the Lord God, glorious over the whole world. Next comes the Song of the Three Youths, as it's titled, or sometimes it's called the Song of the Three Jews. Now the king's servants who threw them in the who threw them in, kept stoking the furnace with naphtha and pitch and tow and brushwood. And the flames poured out above the furnace 49 cubits and spread out and burned those Chaldeans who were caught near the furnace. But the angel of the Lord came down into the furnace to be with Azariah and with his companions and drove the fiery flame out of this furnace and made the inside of the furnace as though a moist wind were whistling through it. The fire did not touch them at all and caused them no pain or distress. Then the three with one voice praised and glorified and blessed God in the furnace. 
Blessed are you, O Lord God of our ancestors, and to be praised and highly exalted forever. Blessed is your glorious holy name, and to be highly praised and highly exalted forever. Blessed are you in the temple of your holy glory, to be extolled and highly glorified forever. Blessed are you who look into the depths from your throne on the cherubim, to be praised and highly exalted forever. Blessed are you on the throne of your kingdom, to be extolled and highly exalted forever. Blessed are you in the firmament of heaven, to be sung and glorified forever. Bless the Lord, all all your works of the Lord. Sing praise to Him, highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, you heavens. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, you angels of the Lord. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all you waters above the heavens. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all you powers of the Lord. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord and the sun and the moon. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, stars of heaven. Sing praises to Him, highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all rain and dew. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all of you winds. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, fire and heat. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, winter cold and summer heat. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, dews and falling snow. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, nights and days. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, light and darkness. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, ice and cold. Sing praise to Him, highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, frosts and snows. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, lightnings and clouds. Sing praise to Him, highly exalt Him forever. Let the earth bless the Lord. Let it sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, mountains and hills. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord everything that grows in the ground. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord seas and rivers. Sing praise to Him. Highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord you springs. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord you whales. Everything that swims in the waters. Sing praises to Him. Highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all birds of the air. Sing praise to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all wild animals and cattle. Sing praises to Him, highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all people of the earth. Sing praises to Him, highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, O Israel. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, you priests of the Lord. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, spirits, souls of the righteous. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, you you who are holy, humble in the heart. 
sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. Bless the Lord, Hananya, Azariah, and Mishael. Sing praises to Him and highly exalt Him forever. For He has rescued us from Hades, saved us from the power of death, delivered us from the midst of the burning fiery furnace. From the midst of the fire He has delivered us. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. All who worship the Lord, bless the God of gods, sing praises to Him, give thanks to Him, for His mercy endures forever. Amen. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. But perhaps you can detect some of the reasons why the Hebrew texts might not choose to include these words. The words in some cases just don't seem to agree, frankly, with what's happening. For one thing, Azariah of Ednego tells God that Nebuchadnezzar is unjust and he's the most wicked king ever. Something God doesn't agree with. Although I suppose if I was in that furnace, I wouldn't be singing his praises either. For another thing, we read of the furnace flames leaping 49 cubits or 75 feet high, which, like a 7,000 degree heat, is impossible. And there certainly is no divine action causing such a supernatural thing to happen. Then we also find that the angel of the Lord is identified as the one who was in the furnace with the boys. And while that is, I suppose, possible, one would think that if such a critical piece of information existed, it would be included in the Hebrew Bible versions, if it was so, rather than leaving it as a complete mystery. In any case, as the king and his company were watching the show, things didn't go quite as planned. Not only didn't the Jews burst into flame, Nebuchadnezzar saw four figures moving around freely inside that furnace, and not three. And in a kind of dumbfounded rhetorical comment to those who were near him, he says, didn't we put three people in the furnace bound up? And they replied, well, of course. He says, but I see four men in there. Now it's unclear whether the other officials that were with the king saw that fourth figure or not. But the part that makes this really interesting is that the king says that the fourth figure looks like a son of the gods. Now language scholars say that the phrase son of gods is not a reasonable English translation. Rather, the Aramaic is Bar Elohim. And in the Babylonian culture, it more has the sense of a son of deity. If this was a Hebrew speaking in the Hebrew language, in a Hebrew context, then we could rightly translate this as a son of the gods or as is often done, the son of God. A son of God. Because the only deity the Hebrews acknowledge is Jehovah. 
So let me remind you again, this is the speech of a pagan king taken within the context of Babylonian theology, which is quite different from Hebrew theology. And for Babylonians, angelic beings were also considered deity, even though they weren't classified as highly as gods. Hebrews, of course, did not classify angels as deity, but rather as spiritual uh, rather as uh, merely spiritual servants of the one deity, Yudhevave, the great Lord, the Creator. Now that said, even though the king is using Aramaic words in a purely pagan sense, it doesn't answer the question. Who was that fourth person that was in there with those three young men? and who apparently virtually changed the environment inside the burning hot furnace to something more resembling a lovely day at the beach. What we can be certain of is that it was no pagan god or angel because they don't exist. Now I don't want to spend too much time with this, but in modern Christian doctrine it's typically said that the mysterious fourth figure was Jesus. And I think, frankly, that's a stretch. That belief comes from two things. First, because of the poor English translation that makes Bar Elohim as Son of God or Son of Gods instead of Son of Deity. And second, because of the rather more rigid version of the Trinity doctrine that was established at the end of the 4th century by Basil at the the Council of Constantinople. It's that version of the Trinity, after a few had come and gone, that has in general been carried over from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism, although it's not entirely accepted in all of its forms, by all of Protestantism or of the Eastern Orthodox Christianity for a couple of good reasons that we really don't have a lot of time to delve into. Of course, I can't possibly say with any kind of certainty that the fourth figure was not a prefiguration of Yeshua, but I can tell you with certainty that the earliest Christians and all of the Jews thought it was a heavenly angel since that completely fits the context. It was only after this newest version, this newest doctrine of the Trinity doctrine was accepted, that the idea sprung up that it was the Messiah in the furnace with the three Jews. I'll let you be the judge of that. Either way, it doesn't change the miraculous and the obviously supernatural nature of what happened. Nor that this was clearly an intervention by the God of Israel. Even if it was only Nebuchadnezzar who saw that fourth figure in the furnace, and that's not certain, it's ambiguous, were explicitly told that a bevy of high government officials witnessed the exit of these three Jewish youth who were not only unburned, but their clothing wasn't singed. They didn't even have the odor of smoke on them. 
And earlier the king had issued a challenge that I don't doubt was to him just an expression of regal chutzpah. In verse 15 he says to the three defiant Jews, but if you won't worship and you you will immediately be thrown into a blazing hot furnace and what God will save you from my power then? Apparently the Lord took that to be a legitimate question rather than an insult and now the question was answered. What God could save the youth from Nebuchadnezzar's power? The God of Israel, that's who. And so the suitably impressed king understood what he personally witnessed was miraculous. So he sang the praises of the God of Israel and also of the courage and the faithfulness of these three boys who were faithful unto death towards their God. What a witness. Well, let's read the few remaining verses of Daniel chapter 3. We'll start at verse 28. Once again, page 1102. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to deliver his servants who trusted in him. They defied the royal order to the point of being willing to give up their bodies in order not to serve or worship any god but their own god. Therefore, I herewith decree that anyone no matter from which people, nation, or language, who says anything to insult the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are to be torn limb from limb and his house is to be reduced to rubble because there is no other god who can save like this. Then the king gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego higher rank in the province of Babel. And the following letter was sent out from Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and languages living throughout the earth. Shalom Rav, abundant peace. I am pleased to recount the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How powerful His wonders! His kingdom lasts forever and He rules all generations. Now while in verse 29, the king decrees that from here forward no one is to speak against this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This by no means is a statement of his conversion. Rather, this is one smart and pragmatic king. Any God who can deliver those boys from the belly of a fiery furnace not only deserves respect, he ought not to be tempted to wrath. Because there's just no telling what else this God might be able to do. But of course, because the king of the largest empire history had ever known was Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylon, he had an ego that was as big as his land holdings. And so in an official letter sent out to the many nations and small kingdoms that forms his empire, he puffs himself up. First, his letter is literally addressed to everyone on earth. Because from his standpoint, he literally sees himself as the literal king of the world. 
And in many ways, Jehovah has inasmuch said that He is. Don't forget that. And second, in verse 32, the king, it has the king viewing the miracle of the three Jews' deliverance as a sign and a wonder that was done for his benefit. And in truth, that did play a significant role in what God did. And lastly, the king remarks that this God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom and that this God rules over all generations of humans. So this amazingly powerful God is, of course, on Nebuchadnezzar's team of gods for the king to call on as needed. Now the truth is that these verses are problematic and they bother even the most conservative scholars. For one thing, it seems as though this pagan king is actually uttering a quote from the Psalms. In high praise of Israel's God, the king says in verse 33, His kingdom lasts forever and he rules all generations. This is nothing we would expect to hear from a pagan monarch. Now listen to Psalm 145 in verse 13. Your kingship is an everlasting kingship and your reign continues throughout all generations. See, some scholars think that this proves that the entire book of Daniel is contrived by a not very smart Jewish author who doesn't realize that people will soon figure out that a pagan king wouldn't quote the Hebrew Psalms even in the praise of the Hebrew God. And while that viewpoint generally sums up the attitude of many of the modern Bible criticism school's commentators, other scholars point out that it's only logical that Daniel would be consulted to help with finding a suitable blessing for the, by, by the king for Israel's God. Who else would he go to? Why wouldn't a king as pragmatic and wise and smart as Nebuchadnezzar choose a Hebrew familiar with Hebrew ritual and tradition to formulate a praise to the Hebrew God. So the bottom line is that the letter being sent throughout the empire, that's what ends chapter 3, was likely penned by Daniel, but it was probably sent in the king's name. Such a thing was common and customary in that era. That was one of the purposes for the scribes that we hear about. Just as leaders of nations have speechwriters and lots of PR people today and they merely attach the gravitas of their name to that document or to that speech See, but nothing can be proved either way however I, I readily admit that now I want to close out today with this thought <clears throat> in the Gentile Nebuchadnezzar we have a good example of a person who professes belief in the God of Israel, but does not acknowledge the fullness of just who that God is, nor does he acknowledge his exclusivity. A few weeks ago I told you of a term that I've invented for a growing group of people who insist on calling themselves Christians, but who also at the same time deny the deity of Christ, deny that He is Messiah, and scoff at the idea that He saves. That term that I gave you was Jesusites. 
And like Nebuchadnezzar, who believes that Jehovah exists and He is a great God, so do Jesusites believe that Jesus existed and was a great man. And like, and like Nebuchadnezzar, who relates to Jehovah and the worldview of paganism, so do Jesusites relate to Jesus in the worldview of secular humanism. James 2, 19-20 You believe that God is one? Good for you! Demons believe it too. And the thought makes them shudder with fear. But foolish fellow, do you want to be shown that such faith apart from actions is barren? Neither Nebuchadnezzar nor are Jesusites have a true understanding of who God is and they do not have a saving faith even though God just may choose to use them just like he did with Pharaoh in his plan of redemption we're going to take up chapter 4 and examine another troubling dream visited upon Nebuchadnezzar the next time we meet.